The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Awareness still happening? Yeah. It's, it's good to just keep checking. Because otherwise, we, you see this sometimes in sort of Dharma circles. It's like, uh, I'm sure you've noticed that most of you have noticed, it's sort of like, oh, I've got to rush back. I got to rush back to my practice or rush back to awareness instead of like a very honest and straightforward question is awareness happening yep it is it's already there it's already happening which is a whole different sense and this is why it's like in terms of the factors of awakening it's really good that the list begins with mindfulness because it's sort of mysterious I sent out, not that you have to read it, and certainly not expecting people to follow Ajahn Brahm's instructions for awareness practice or mindfulness practice. The article was The Basic Method of Meditation by Ajahn Brahmavamso. He's a Western, he's originally from England, um, teacher, uh, head of a monastery in Australia. But uh, the important thing is that part one, just a couple pages, part one of his instructions, which is don't focus your attention. Just let go of the past and future and see if you can sustain present moment awareness, like I was trying to invite all of us to do tonight. And even for another week, you know, just to get a hang, because the hang of it will really help with the other factors to develop a deeper sense of the naturalness and effortlessness. So instead of, because we're uprooting a wrong idea that awareness is something I have to do. So then mindfulness always gets equated with directing attention. It doesn't mean we don't direct attention. We do do that, but that's just not mindfulness. It's like sometimes we contemplate something, we hold a theme in mind, and that can be really useful, like, contemplating impermanence, for example. And awareness, mindful awareness, is really part of that contemplation. But holding a theme in mind isn't mindfulness. It's, you know, it's that directing of the, the attention. It's really more what we're going to start talking about next week, this quality of investigation where the mind, because it's sort of like recognizing awareness, trusting awareness, abiding in awareness, noticing that the heart, the mind is endowed with awareness, then it, it kind of opens up this possibility of investigation. Because all of a sudden, this something comes online when we recognize awareness, that there is awareness, then something comes online. Wow. There's a conditional unfolding going on here, like within the psychology, the movement of the mind. There is something lawfully unfolding here, what we normally would call me, right? But now, because we're recognizing the space of awareness, this inherent space of awareness, then it reveals the conditional nature 
And within that conditional, lawful unfolding, you know, how everything is unfolding, all of a sudden the possibility of recognizing what's skillful, what supports, what leads to the releasing of tension, for example, and what naturally leads to the entanglement and the building up of tension, all of a sudden that's apparent and the mind has something to investigate. So that's the second factor of awakening that we'll dig into more next week. And the more that whole world of the lawful, natural unfolding of causes and conditions in the mind plays out, the more the heart understands what effort is required. Like, oh my goodness, it's relevant, the natural, lawful unfolding how the mind gets entangled, how the mind can let go. It's like, because of investigation, the heart is inspired to be persistent because it realizes it matters, right? Investigation reveals the law of karma. It matters. It matters how the mind is showing up. And so then the heart wants to be persistent. It wants to make effort that's skillful. And the more, you know, it's sort of like the opposite of feeling helpless. We start to feel, the heart starts to feel empowered with this third factor of effort or energy. And as that empowerment builds, like, oh, I'm beginning to, with investigation, see how it all works how the mind gets entangled, how the mind lets go, releases. More commitment, more persistence, feeling of empowerment. As that builds, then joy arises. I'm not helpless. It's just a matter of time, and the mind can realize how to be more and more skillful, how to release, how to avoid entanglements. And waves of joy at times are experienced. Just delight. The mind is delighting of not, basically delighting in not being helpless. Delighting in this uh, collection, you know, the energies of the mind, the energies of our life, you could say. It starts unifying, gathering, being more committed in this, like, oh, I know what to do with this life. I know what to do with this mind. Right? Remember awareness so that this world of this conditional world of things unfolding becomes apparent. The difference between what's skillful and unskillful becomes apparent. Commit fully, energy, right? That's the third factor. Feel the enlivening joy of not being helpless, of that being able to be skillful, being able to walk the path, you could say. And that, you know, naturally, organically, so I'm, you can see I'm just sort of laying, and it's not the only way to talk about the seven factors, but I'm laying them out in a linear way. So the more joy, the more sense of empowerment, waves of delight, appreciation of the path, feeling 
the sort of natural fruit of commitment, the mind, heart, being ardent, unified, dedicated, devoted to sort of observing skillfulness and unskillfulness, learning from mistakes, appreciating success. It all kind of feeds on itself more and more joy, and that sort of opens the heart to experiences, deeper experiences of calm and tranquility. <coughs> it's really the, the non-dispersion um, of the mind. It's like the mind isn't so interested in thinking about the past or future. It's not disturbing itself with activities that aren't really about the present moment. And so the, the system of the heart, mind, body, it really settles down. gets quiet, gets calm, and we feel tranquil. And as that settling process matures, we call it concentration or samadhi. There's a real stillness. Because of the wholeheartedness, you know, the energy, like um, Saito Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher that some people in the room have studied with. Rob was recently in Burma at his monastery, and he's come to the States. Shelley recently did a retreat with him in Hawaii, and Wynn and I have practiced with him in the past. Many of you have read his books and heard his um, small group interviews with retreatants that uh, you can find on Dharma Seed. They're quite good. And I uh, put an article of his around investigation, which is really his big theme as a teacher, you know, the importance of this ongoing investigation. So I, I have it up on the website. I think I might have sent it in the email too. I can't remember. Um, but he has a really, I think, useful way of talking about the seven factors where he says that really from a practitioner point of view, we're just doing the first three, right? We're personally remembering there is awareness. We're personally remembering to recognize there is awareness. We're not doing the awareness. We're personally making the effort to remember there is awareness. There is mindful awareness happening. And I'm going to keep that in mind. I'm, not going to forget, I'm going to practice not forgetting that. And the more we can do that, really let go of the activity of dwelling on the past, speculating about the future, so we're remembering there is awareness knowing this, knowing the present moment. So you could just say, for simple simplicity's sake, you know, sustain present moment awareness then that opens that world of investigation. So then, you know, as a practitioner in that world of investigation, it's like we're recognizing how the mind gets entangled, gets tied up in knots, how it gets seduced to worry about something, to react to something. Greed gets involved or aversion gets involved or distraction, denial gets involved. How the mind then recognizes that and the disentangling happens. You know, we've all seen that in our practice, right? Haven't you seen your mind in a knot and then letting go? And haven't you, at least at times, catching yourself getting into a knot? So this is things we see just ordinarily in our practice. And so we do that 
in a sense, we participate in that investigation. We participate in remembering awareness is here, doing its thing. And we, in a sense, participate in the commitment, the effort, the energy. Like, oh, this is relevant. I care about this. I'm devoted to this. I'm going to be persistent with this. This is relevant. This is helpful. So that effort, the ardency of the effort, the commitment, committedness, or wholeheartedness, it's really a flow of compassion. It's like because investigation reveals there is skillful and unskillful ways that the mind unfolds, then compassion steps in and says, I care about this. I'm going to be committed because it matters whether the mind's skillful or unskillful. And basically, that's it. Everything else, in a sense, Saito Utejaniya says, in a sense, is a karmic fruit of the first three. Right? So again, the seven factors, mindfulness, investigation of Dhamma, the way it is, energy, the sort of committedness, persistence, wholeheartedness, because it matters. And then joy is a fruit of those first three. Tranquility is a fruit of the first three. The stillness of concentration is the fruit of the first three. And the arising of equanimity, of balance, is a fruit of the first three. That helps because otherwise we will think, I got to do tranquility. You know, I have to do stillness. I have to do equanimity. And it's all counterproductive. These are very organic unfoldings. In fact, the whole thing ultimately you see as an organic, natural unfolding. It's sort of a stage in the practice um, when these seven factors come into balance. Then instead of experiencing them as I'm talking about them tonight as a linear process, we experience them more in a holographic way that they're sort of feeding on each other. It's sort of like... uh, a beautiful dance, a harmonious dance of these qualities of the mind that have this coherent, this coherence that kind of keeps the mind bright and relaxed, keeps the engine of awakening humming along. And it's a real, like I said, it's a real insight when, and it may initially be just for a few moments, really, just a few moments, where we, the mind recognizes that coherence, that beautiful balance, that bright and relaxed quality of the mind. And, but something forever changes when the mind sees that because you can't forget that. And then the idea of our path being arduous, and i got to do it, that's, that a real dent comes in that view that I have to, climb the Mount Everest of my Dharma practice. It still doesn't mean it's easy, but something starts to come online or something arises in the mind that, that the real way forward is uh, setting in motion, supporting something coming into balance that does the practice, that is the practice. So we're, we're, we're kind of... Uh, trying to support what, in a sense, wants to arise anyway. It's a little bit like gardening, you know. The plants, there's a lot 
built into the plants that they want to grow. You know, that tomato plant, it wants to draw the minerals up. It wants to collect the energy from the sun. It wants to, you know, have this amazing fruit with the seeds. It's all like, so as a gardener, you know, we're, we're kind of reading the conditional nature, right? That's the investigation. We're showing up. That's the awareness. We're seeing the conditional, the lawfulness of how it all works. We're appreciating the lawfulness, right? Like, oh, it's lawful. So I can just commit to doing what's skillful and refraining from what's not skillful, like digging up to see if the roots are growing. Like, (laughs) that doesn't help. So if I just like stay committed to what I've directly seen helps and uh, avoiding, abandoning what I've directly seen doesn't help, I'm guaranteed to get results, you know, given everything at play. That's what I can do. And then we settle down. Like in that committedness, in that sort of non-distraction, joy arises, tranquility arises, stillness arises, equanimity arises, and then, of course, it feeds onto itself, back onto itself. So again, if you're interested, then read the first couple pages of Ajahn Brahm's instructions where he talks about that sustained present moment awareness. And he also talks in a nice way, I think, about the abandoning of the past and the future. That's really the telltale signs that we're not in that curiosity about awareness, not following the thread of awareness. Saida Upandita, another well-known Burmese teacher, says in his book, In This Very Life, about the seven factors, he says, one does not become enlightened by merely gazing into the sky. One does not become enlightened by reading or studying the scriptures, nor by thinking, nor by wishing for the enlightened state to burst into one's mind. There are certain necessary conditions or prerequisites which cause enlightenment, awakening, to arise. In Pali, these are known as the bojangas, the factors of awakening, and there are seven of them. I think, I don't know if I shared this quote from Jack Kornfield. He refers to them as the sap that runs through the Buddha's tree of liberation a powerful healing medicine. I like that. And another really beautiful line that I came across, um, I think he's a Zen teacher, John Tarrant. But he talks about, like, especially this first fact of awakening mindfulness as an intention, right, to recognize awareness, to recognize mindfulness, awareness. He says it's an intention so persevering it becomes a kind of love. And this intention, this uh, experience of awareness, this, you should, I think we can say this truth of awareness. It's something the mind is endowed with. And it's like, it's okay, I think, and maybe for some of you, especially useful to equate that with love. Like, 
the mind is endowed with love. It's endowed with intimacy. It's endowed with awareness. But we forget that. We get so caught up, so absorbed in our reactions and our thoughts about the past and the future that the mind becomes oblivious to this endowment of love, of awareness, of intimacy. We forget it. I gave uh, the link to Santikaro's um, article. It's mostly about investigation, but he spends the first part of the article talking about the seven factors. So it will be especially useful to read uh, for next week. Um, And he says in that article, the idea is that the seven components are not separate things. They go together as a unitary whole. When the meditator gets in close and contemplates with a well-established mind, in that moment, all the seven factors are arising together. They happen all together at the same time, not separately, and not one leading to the other in a sequence. That's what I was mentioning before. And then in the tradition, it said that when it, there is that natural coherence and balance of the seven happening together, not this sort of linear development, but they're there in balance, happening, feeding off of each other, supporting each other, then the awakening process happens naturally. The mind withdraws from greed, anger, and delusion. The sense of releasing this passion, letting go, happens. So there's this, it's like the mind, with that, with these seven factors, it's like that is the direct cause for the mind letting go. You know, we'd like to, when we see or notice that we're caught, attached, we know, I mean, on an intellectual level, we know we should let go. Like, why am I so attached? Why am I so caught? Why is this so hard, so heavy in my heart? But what wisdom understands is that letting go will happen when these factors are there. Then the mind sees the absurdity of clinging, of attachment. It's only when that balance is just right, when the powers of the mind have that beautiful coherence or balance, that the absurdity, the dysfunction, the unnecessariness of grasping, of struggling, becomes apparent. That's the cause of letting go. There isn't a person who lets go. Letting go happens when, when the mind is in balance. When the mind is in balance, it sees that, that struggling is unnecessary. And letting go happens. Awakening happens. Freedom happens. That's a relief, you know, not to think we're the one who has to do it. So before we break into small groups, what I was thinking, I mentioned this last week, you know, uh, the basic theme for the small group work, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how we do these small groups in a moment, but it's just to share as, you know, in as best way you can, 
your understanding, your direct, immediate experience of what you take, excuse me, mindful awareness to be, how you see it manifesting, what you've learned is not mindful awareness, why it's confusing. And then just to help focus the conversation or what you share, you know, how you see it, how you experience as a natural, impersonal process, how you see it at times, like what is doing practice or doing awareness, how does that manifest, does it manifest, when is there a sense of doing as opposed to something that's recognized, right? So to just to hold that question, is it something I do? Is awareness, mindful awareness, something I do? Or is it something that's recognized, that's happening, and is at times recognized? And then at other times, that recognition of awareness is sustained. So there's a continuity. It's not so much that there's a continuity of awareness. More accurately, we say there's a continuity of remembering that there's awareness, right? As opposed to, I'm sort of continuous, continuously aware. It's more, I, there is a continuity of remembering, oh my gosh, awareness is here, awareness is happening, awareness is knowing, awareness is knowing. The other article that I, I mentioned to read for this week, uh, The Buddhist Teachings on Mindfulness by Gil Franzdahl, you can find that on our webpage or in one of the emails that I sent you. And uh, it's a nice review um, of the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness. And, and uh, Gil really makes these points well, I think. And he calls it a state of receptive attentiveness, not requiring self-conscious effort. Right? So that's an important thing. And that the practice is not so much about being mindful as, about, as it is about practices that support mindfulness, you know, that reveal it, that work well with mindfulness. And, you know, this is one of the really interesting things If for those people who are really interested, you could take a look at Venerable Analio's book, Perspectives on the Satipatthana, which is his book on the establishments or foundations of mindfulness. And it's very interesting because he's very clear in doing the research from the Chinese canon and the Tibetan canon and the Pali canon. So looking at these early um, ways that the Buddhist teachings were documented or recorded and really finding what was there in all three places and it becomes very clear that this famous discourse on mindfulness isn't about what we pay attention to. It isn't about the objects of awareness. It's about practices, when done, reveal sort of, uh, sort of reveal what awareness is, what awareness is capable of. Right, the transforming power of awareness. So it's much more about purifying the view. Like just in terms of mindfulness of body, when you look at the teachings in the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness, 
the uh, pieces that are there in all the different recordings from the Chinese, because the teachings went very early to China and then centuries later to Tibet. And so when he looked, the, the sort of looking at the body in terms of the anatomical parts, some of you know this from our class we had in Mindfulness of the Body, and looking at the body in terms of the four elements, which we talked about recently at the, in the Sunday and Wednesday practice groups, and looking at the body in terms of decay, its impermanence, its breaking apart. These are, you know, there's a lot of conceptual thinking in each of these three trainings. They're not about awareness. They're about thinking about the body as 32 parts. There's skin, there's bones, there's blood, there's muscle, there's this, there's that, right? Because we're purifying the view of the body. Instead of the habit of seeing the body as something like me and something I like, it's like, it's just what it is. It's just a bunch of different parts. So it's, it's disrupting wrong view of the body. Same with the four elements. We tend to take it personally, but when we see it, it's just hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, coolness, heat. It's hard to take it personally. When we contemplate the body's demise and its decay once it's dead, it's hard to think of the body as something that's permanent. So a lot of the teachings, the Buddha's, you know, this discourse on mindfulness, it's really about kind of clearing the ground so that we can understand the experience of awareness, right? The non-superficial and the non-conceptual, like understanding awareness as a non-superficial and a non-conceptual activity. Because, like I mentioned in the guided meditation, awareness is inclusive. It doesn't leave anything out. It's only the discriminating mind that wants to pay attention to this that exclude. But that's not awareness. That's some part of the mind directing its attention. It's focusing in. It wants to know something. But awareness doesn't discriminate. It just knows. And it's not conceptual. It's not dependent on meaning. Meaning is just something that can be known. Like if there is a thought, conceptual thought, that's just something being known. So this is sort of interesting that like uh, right at the beginning of the class to, to make this deep imprint that awareness isn't something we do. Awareness is something to recognize and to trust, and to remember. Like, oh yeah, there is awareness. There is awareness. There is awareness. And if you're going to use a thought, that would be a good one. Oh, there is awareness. There is knowing happening. Isn't it interesting? It is interesting. It's so effortless. Uh, Nobody's doing it. And that's this practice, the sustaining present moment awareness, is to kind of keep that in mind. And initially, feel free to use language to help you keep it in mind if it helps. Like some of the words that I just said, like awareness is happening. So we have small groups every other week. Most of you know this. We'll break into small groups in just a few minutes. The idea is to sit close together in your group of three so you don't have to use a loud voice. 
That just makes it easier not to be distracted by any other small groups close to you. When you sit down with each other, share each other's names. I invite you to share the pronouns that you like to use. Some of you might not realize, but uh, one of the ways that our community can be more inclusive, more welcoming to people is to realize that not everybody feels comfortable with the binary pronouns that you know have been used recently through history in, a, in the West here. And uh, so just to say, I use he and him, or I use they and them, or I use she and her, can be really inviting for people who don't feel comfortable with the binary pronouns. So that's a nice thing to do at the beginning of your small groups. It's nice to have a name tag. So you're sitting there, you're sitting close, you say your name. If you feel comfortable, share your pronouns. Decide what order. Each person gets about three minutes. That's your three minutes. Even if you run out of something to say, that's really okay. Because we, if, if we don't know how to sit together in silence, nobody will, right? So we make it safe. Like if you've run out of things to say, just use your time to be in silence and to continue to contemplate what you've learned, what you've discovered, what your experience of awareness is. Is it something you do, something you notice, what's confusing about what Mark's been saying or what you've been studying? So anything like that is appropriate. And then when your three minutes is up, either if you're close, you'll hear me ringing the bell. If you're one in the four corners of the, of the building, one of you will have to time. Then you can acknowledge, if you like Anjali, or just say thanks. The people who are listening can say thanks to the person. doesn't need to be elaborate, just an acknowledgement, to appreciating the person sharing. And then the next person goes for three minutes, and then the next person. And then there's about five minutes just for an open discussion at the end. And that's what we do. We hold in confidence whatever gets shared in the small groups. Um, and it's really important for the people who are, when you're one of the folks listening, to just be really intimate with your body. It actually helps you be intimate. Remember, because mindfulness doesn't discriminate. So if you're really noticing the awareness of the body, not trying to be aware of the body, but noticing the awareness is knowing the body, then you're going to notice that awareness is noticing the person and what they're saying. Right? So this intimacy, recognizing the intimacy with the body, will really allow you to be intimate with the person and what the person is saying. Any questions about that? So what do you think? About 70? So... That would mean 20, let's do 23, see if that works. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.